This is The Awkward Apocalypse, a deconstruction podcast that examines Christian culture against the authority of scripture. I'm Corey Kuhn, and today I'm going to offer my book review of The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. This is the catchy theme song. This is the catchy theme song. This book is pretty popular within deconstruction circles. It's not necessarily a deconstruction book, but I've noticed that it's pretty popular and people reference it a lot. And I think one of the reasons for that is deconstruction groups are, from my experience and observations, pretty feminine. Like a lot of people who are deconstructing right now are female. At least those seem to be like the louder voices. I'm noticing a very strong concentration of girls who are vocal within deconstruction circles. So I can't say for sure whether or not a majority of those deconstructing are female. It just seems that way. And before I get to the book review, I just think that's really sad because when Christianity first became a religion, it was very feminine. Christianity actually got made fun of for being feminine. And one of the reasons for that was because it empowered women. It was a place where women found worth and value and dignity and empowerment. And so it was actually mocked for being very female, hardly what Christianity looks like today. And so I guess with that in mind, it's really odd to think about how those who are struggling with the church are females. Those who have been hurt by the church, those who have been wounded by theology and by church practices seem to be females. And so I think that's one reason for the popularity of this book, because a lot of people deconstructing are looking for answers. Why was I hurt like this? And was it just? Are the wounds that I have because of Christianity or because of a mishandling of Christianity? And I think in a lot of ways, that's what this book is trying to address. Like I said, it's not necessarily a deconstruction book, at least by most people's definition. By my definition, it would be because I consider deconstruction just to be whenever you take Christian culture and then you compare it to the Bible and ask the question, are the ways that we are currently practicing Christianity line up with the Bible? Does the church line up with the Bible? And if not, what can we do about it? How can we break this thing down, compare it to the Bible, and then make the proper reforms that we need to in order to practice Christianity in its purest form, in order to imitate Christ the best we can? And I really think that's what this book is trying to do. So by my definition, it would be a deconstruction book. But for most people, deconstruction kind of means like leaving the faith or breaking Christianity apart and dissecting it so much that it kind of ceases to be Christianity. Like it kind of becomes something else entirely. And a lot of people who are deconstructing would still call it Christianity. But for a lot of people who are deconstructing, the Christianity they end up with really doesn't line up with Orthodox Christianity. So I guess it would just be something else entirely. As I was reading this book, I think I found myself wanting to be wrong. Like I was really rooting for her because for me, I've always been a complementarian in my theology and I've always interpreted Paul's letters that way. But as I was reading this book, I was honestly kind of hopeful that maybe she would give me a good reason not to be anymore because that's honestly a really hard battle to fight. And there are a lot of hard battles in the Bible. Like there's a lot of things I read in the Bible and part of me is kind of like secretly, I hope that's not interpreted properly or translated properly because then I don't have to defend that. That's kind of the hard thing about being a more conservative evangelical is you hold to the Bible as the word of God. And so sometimes you read things in the Bible and 
yeah, you want to just kind of throw it out and be like, yeah, that's not part of the Bible. That's he wasn't serious when he said that like really violent passages in the old Testament or things that God said that are hard to reconcile with him being a loving God versus about homosexuality versus about women. I mean, there's a lot in the Bible that when you read it as an honest Christian, you just kind of go, I guess, man, like, wow, I, I don't like that, but I guess I accept that because that's the religion I belong to. And I think that's kind of hard in our culture because our culture says that what we believe is what we want to be true. And as a Christian, that's not always the case, at least if you're going to be like a consistent Christian. I mean, if you're going to approach the Bible and change the things you don't like at that point, you're not really a Christian because the Bible is not the authority. That's what it means to be a Christian. To say that Jesus is Lord means he has authority over your life. And if the Bible is his word, then that Bible has authority over you. And so I say all that to say that there are certain things in the Bible that I kind of want to be wrong. And yet I believe that God is perfect and his word is perfect. And so if he says it, I accept it, but that doesn't mean I'm always going to like it. And I think that's okay to admit. I mean, I don't like the idea of hell. Whenever I hear arguments for why hell's not real, I'm like pulling for it to be correct, like that argument to be correct. So I don't have to believe in hell anymore because I would really like to not believe in hell. And I think complementarianism is one of those things that I wouldn't mind if the Bible didn't teach that. Like I don't particularly like it. And I think at the heart of deconstruction is being okay with being wrong. In a lot of ways, that's where deconstruction starts. It starts with you admitting I was wrong about something really foundational to my faith. And that's okay because I want the truth. And I believe that's kind of the beginning of the deconstruction journey is it's admitting that you don't want to just hold to something you've been indoctrinated to believe or just simply taught to believe. You're willing to question it for yourself. And if you arrive at a different conclusion than you were taught to arrive at, well, that's part of the journey. That's what the journey of deconstruction is. It's kind of like floating in an ocean of uncertainty and allowing yourself to just kind of be in that uncertainty. And it's super uncomfortable for someone who's been brought up to believe that everything you believe is absolutely certain, but that's how you grow. And that's the beauty of deconstruction. It's super uncomfortable, but you grow a lot from it. And so I think that as I was reading this book, I kind of had that deconstruction mentality where I said, you know what? I hold to a complementarian interpretation of scripture, but I'm pulling for her. I, I want her to convince me that I'm wrong. And I think after reading the book, I can say that I'm still not sure if she was successful in convincing me. And the reason why I say that is not because the book is bad or it doesn't put out a good case. The reason I say that is because the book is more historical than it is theological. She says over and over again that she's a historian and she's not a theologian. And so what's difficult about reading historical books is you can't really know if the author is lying. I mean, unless you're a historian or you're able to like verify and look up a lot of the stuff that they're saying, but that would take a lot of time and a lot of research and not everyone has that kind of time and not everyone has the ability to look up everything that they're claiming. And so reading a book that is historical in nature, you kind of just have to take the author at their word. You kind of just have to trust them. You know, if you read a book on philosophy or something like that, where you can apply your own logic to it and test it to see if what they're saying is true, that's a little bit different. You can have more of an informed opinion. But for me, I'm not a historian. In fact, I'm really bad at history. And so her being a historian, I don't really have an informed opinion on her historical notes. Really, I'm only in a position to comment on her theology. And for me, that's ultimately what matters. 
like the history of interpretation and things like that definitely play into our theology. And she lays out a really good case for that. But for me, I have to take a more theological approach. And what I'm really interested in are the passages that are used to justify complementarian positions. And she does address that. So I'll get to that in a minute. And so I want this to be interesting to you. If you didn't read the book, I don't want this to be just a podcast for those who have read the book. And so I'll offer a quick summary. And then hopefully all of the points I make will still be interesting to you, even if you haven't read the book. And so her basic premise is this. The patriarchy is not a biblical concept. In fact, it is a sinful result of the fall. And instead of deriving from the Bible, the concept of the patriarchy, historically, people have inserted the patriarchy into the pages of scripture and sort of eisegetically justified their patriarchal position as they read that into scripture rather than pulling it out of scripture. And so it's just been kind of always there, always part of Christian culture as dominant men inserted that into the pages of scripture. And I think that's where I'll note one of the issues that I had with the book one of the issues I had was her strong use of purpose statements. I guess that's how I would say it. And by that, I mean, she sort of ascribed motives to people in history. She says that certain interpretations or certain things were inserted into Christian culture with the purpose of maintaining the patriarchy. And that's fine to do. But I think if you're going to do that, you need to make a really strong case. And maybe it was like, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that there were several instances where I kind of raised my eyebrows and said, wow, that's a that's a really strong accusation she's making almost as if like the goal of the translators was to maintain the patriarchy. And look, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And I could definitely see that. I mean, power structures are really hard to dismantle because those in power like their power and they don't give it up very easily and they fight for it and try to justify it using whatever means necessary. And so I can totally see that happening. I think my issue was she never really offered proof for the strong accusations she was making against those in history for disingenuously maintaining the patriarchy. And I think that was one issue for me that I had at several points in the book. And I think I would also note that just because historically a theology has been abused or misused does not necessarily make that belief wrong. Now, as Christians, we do expect that theology applied properly would lead to human flourishing, not human destruction. But the key there is applied properly. While some theology is at its core destructive, other theology is good. It can just be bad if it's not applied properly. And I think that the way that she portrays complementarianism within the book, I kind of took an issue with that because, like I said at the beginning, I've always been a complementarian and a lot of what she says in the book doesn't really apply to me. I mean, they were kind of like extreme cases, like extreme abuses by people who I kind of read and I'm like, I don't think that person's even a Christian. And I would say that I think she misrepresented complementarianism. I think there are a lot of loving husbands and healthy marriages that hold to complementarian values. I think that in some ways she really did a disservice to complementarians and now it's harder for me to admit that I even hold that position because of the way that I've been portrayed in this book. And so I do feel bad for her and the experiences that she's had, but experience does not necessarily define reality. And like I said, she does a good job of laying out her case outside of her own experience. But I think the experiences she shares, a lot of times there's not like a good experience that she attributes to complementarianism. Like as I'm sitting here, I can't think of a single example where she pointed to perhaps a good experience with complementarianism. It was kind of like all bad and all toxic. 
but I will say that there have been two key points for me in kind of doubling back on scripture that I always use to justify my stance on complementarianism. And one of them has to do with woman pastors. Like I said, that's a battle I just really don't feel like fighting. And if I don't have to, I don't want to. And I was actually recently reading another book called Jesus Feminist. And I was reading about her interpretation of First Timothy 2, where it talks about a woman can't exercise authority over a man. And I had always read that as Paul was grounding that argument in creation because he talks about man being created first and not woman. But Bessie's interpretation at that point really shook me because I had never heard her interpretation before. She basically says that woman was created first and then man is not an argument grounded in creation. Rather, it's just an example to show that Adam was created first and was given the law first and his job was to teach Eve who was ignorant. And her point was in that society, women were illiterate and were not exposed to biblical teaching like men. And therefore it was man's responsibility to teach women the law and the scripture. And so it wasn't right for women to be exercising authority over men because they had no source for that authority. They didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know the Bible. They weren't able to read. And so for her, she said it's cultural and that doesn't apply now. And I had never thought about that. Like that never occurred to me. And that really gave me a lot to think about. Anyways, this isn't a book review of Jesus Feminist. I just thought I would point that out that for me, that was kind of a turning point where I started to question a lot of the beliefs I held. I always thought that was kind of a cut and dry literal reading of the text to say that women should not exercise authority over men. And it's clearly laid out by Paul, but her interpretation really made me think. And I think another one of those moments came for me in the book when she briefly discusses the position that a lot of complementarians hold when in the old Testament, women stepped forward and led or were prophets and more conservative scholars will interpret that and say that the women leading was not the ideal. In fact, it represented the depravity of that nation or just how bad things had gotten that a woman had to step up and lead. But one of the themes that you find throughout the Bible is the weak, the vulnerable, the outcast, the younger, those who are powerless, taking charge and leading and God using those broken and weak vessels to bring forth his plan for salvation. That's one of the big themes throughout scripture. And that continues on into Jesus's ministry. And I would say is actually amplified in the ministry of Jesus. And so a woman leading or taking charge to look at that and say, that's just showing how bad things have gotten. I think that's not to interpret that in light of the entire Bible, which constantly is bringing those less valuable in society and using those to take the charge and usher in the kingdom of God. And so I don't think that women leading in those cases is necessarily like the exception. I think that's God showing once again, he likes to use the weak in society to accomplish his will. And by weak, I mean culturally weak. And that occurred to me as I was reading and I thought, wow, like I really need to give this more thought. Christianity is notorious for straw man arguments. And I think the Christianity that I've been exposed to for most of my life is no exception to that. I am not really aware of good arguments against the positions that I hold. I've never been exposed to them. And so in a lot of ways, this is the first time in my life that I'm truly confronting different theologies. I always just kind of assumed that my way of reading the Bible was right. And anyone who disagreed with me was a moron. And just as a rule for life, if you think that anyone who disagrees with your position is a moron, that's probably because you're in an echo chamber and you're going to get destroyed if you step out into an argument with an intellectual person who holds a different position because you've probably never encountered it. One of the things that really irritates me about Christianity is a lot of times when you're exposed to the other position, it's by people who agree with you, just explaining to you what the other people believe. And 
most of the time, they're not going to offer a fair representation of it. Like when Christians try to tell other Christians what atheists believe, a lot of times it's straw man arguments. It's really weak. And any atheist, I think, who hears that is like, that's not even what, like, that's so unfair to my position. And I know that because I've actually sat in these lectures with a friend who was like an undercover atheist. And he's just looking at me, like shaking his head, like, what? I don't even believe that. Anyways, I just see that a lot in Christianity is sort of this misrepresentation of the other side, but there's never really like a true interaction or a true dialogue. And so you get people like me people who have never really been exposed to these arguments. And so a lot of what she said in this book, it's the first time I've heard it. So I have a lot to process and I have a lot to think about. And I should have been thinking about that all along. I should have been exposed to these arguments all along. But Christianity is really bad about just spoon feeding you what you're supposed to believe and what you're supposed to think. And so they should not be surprised at the number of people who are deconstructing today. Like that's their fault. They taught us what to think, but they never told us how to think. And now we're trying to figure that out on our own. And so the church can get mad at people deconstructing all at once, but a lot of this is kind of their fault. Anyways, I'll get back to the book review. I also want to bring in larger points that I've noticed. So if you've never read the book, hopefully this is interesting to you. But there are a few more things I'd like to point out about the book. One is the interpretation of Ephesians 5. Now, I ran into this interpretation both in Barr's book and Bessie's book, Jesus Feminist. And the argument basically goes like this, because the Roman society was complementarian, Paul was telling the Ephesians in Ephesians 5 that they also need to observe this complementarian model, but with a twist that empowers women and values women. And then the comparison is made to Ephesians 6 when Paul is addressing slaves and masters. And the argument goes like this. Just because Paul says that slaves should obey their masters does not necessarily mean that he thinks slavery is a good thing. So just because he tells wives to submit to their husbands does not necessarily mean he thinks that's a good model for a marriage. Now, those two are different in a pretty crucial way. Ephesians 6 is giving guidelines how to operate within the institution of slavery, which is a bad thing. And Paul even says in a different book that if the slave can gain his freedom, it's a good thing. But when you compare that to marriage, Paul is giving instructions in Ephesians 5 how wives and husbands are to conduct themselves within marriage, which is itself a good institution. So slavery, bad institution, marriage, good institution. The problem is not the guidelines he gives for slaves and masters in Ephesians 6. It's the fact that he's addressing the institution, which is a bad thing. Now, the institution of marriage, on the other hand, is a good thing. So I think that comparison, while it is valid to bring that up, I don't think that's really airtight reasoning. And I do understand the argument that's being made that Paul is just modeling his advice after Roman society, but I still don't entirely buy it. Because as she even points out in the book, Christianity often set itself against the standards, against the norms, and against the society at large so that it could be different. That's literally what holiness is, is being different. And that's a theme throughout the entire Bible, is being different from the culture and the people around you. And while she does make the case that Paul does add that like feminist twist to his advice to married couples... I'm just not entirely sure that that context allows us to throw out the advice that's given in Ephesians 5. 
because really the only part you would throw out is wives submit to your husbands because I don't think you're really going to try to throw out the whole part where it tells husbands to love their wives and give themselves up for their wives as Christ did the church. I just think there's one little section of that that we have an issue with. And I'm just like, I'm not buying it, I guess is what I'm saying. I see the argument that's being made. I just don't think it's an airtight argument. And I think that if you're an egalitarian, it's going to convince you. And if you're a complementarian, it's not going to convince you. And so on Ephesians 5, I'm still not entirely sold that egalitarianism is the proper translation of that passage. And people like to point out that right before that passage, it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, but it still gives specific instructions to wives. And you got to deal with that. You can't just say, well, it says submit to one another. Therefore, husbands should submit to their wives too, because it gives different instructions to husbands and to wives, which I think upholds complementarianism unless you undo it with the cultural context of the time, which, like I said, I just am not sure I'm entirely convinced on that, but I'm open to be wrong there. I think I'll note just kind of in passing that the passage where it talks about there's neither male nor female, I think that argument to me has always been really weak because that passage is not saying that male and female as concepts do not exist. Paul's point in that passage is simply to say that class and race and gender distinctions that are usually used to oppress and separate us are not markers of division or value in the kingdom of God. I don't think he's making a point that we make him make there. I think we're kind of reading our own interpretation into that passage. I think his point has more to do with value and dignity. I don't think his point is to say that those distinctions don't exist outright and that's it. There, there are no distinctions in the kingdom of God. And I don't think those distinctions are necessarily bad things. But I will say that one of my favorite parts of this whole feminist movement within deconstruction is the focus on the way that Jesus treated women. Barr points that out, and I would say I think she's exactly right. I think that in our treatment of women, she correctly points out that we focus on Paul way too much in the things that Paul says, but we don't really look at what Jesus did. Jesus's actions hold a lot of theological weight and the way that he prioritized and valued women is something that I think churches should seek to imitate. Like I said, in the early days of Christianity, Christianity was very feminine and Jesus kind of led the way in that. The example that Jesus set empowered women and made them feel valued in a society that did not value them, that viewed them as property and as unworthy of education, but Jesus let them sit at his feet and learn. He let them be prominent figures. He let them be the first ones to discover the empty tomb. I mean, women play a huge role in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, a woman is the one who brought him into the world and the man didn't even contribute anything to it. He just found her a place to sleep for the night. Jesus loves to use women in his ministry. And I think that's an example we should follow. And I think that's a really good point that she brings up. And I think that is a big reason why a lot of women are deconstructing because for a lot of women in their churches, they weren't valued and they didn't have a voice. And they've been really hurt by this complementarian model that has been abused and leveraged against them to keep them silent and keep them in their place where they don't necessarily belong, where they weren't in Jesus's ministry. And I think that's a really good point. And that's something that a lot of churches need to wrestle with. And I think that's something I need to wrestle with as I deconstruct this complementarian model that I've believed my whole life. I also looked in my Greek Bible and Barr was right. The word that is used for Phoebe in Romans 6 is the same word for deacon. They just translate it servant. Like she didn't make that up. And look, I'm in Liberia, so I don't have a lot of resources with me. So I just looked at the Greek dictionary in the back of my Bible and it translates Romans 16 as deaconess. It doesn't even translate it as servant like the ESV does. And so she's got a good point there. 
Like maybe that was an intentional interpretation that was inserted into the text. In seminary, one of my professors used to always say, all translations are interpretations. And he's right. I mean, I think that when you translate a text, you have to kind of inject your own interpretation into it at a lot of points. And I think this is one of them. And I think that's something that we really need to wrestle with is it looks like a woman, not just one woman, but a lot of women in Romans 16 were prominent figures within the early church. They weren't just silently sitting in the pews and playing the piano. They actually had a more valuable and prominent role as leaders in the early church, which I will say again, was very feminine. Okay, so one more point and then I'll conclude. Towards the end of the book, Barr points out that the subordination argument within the Trinity is used by some churches to justify complementarianism. And I've never heard that. The subordination argument is, as she points out, a heresy. It basically argues that Jesus is subordinate to the Father. And according to her, this is used to show how wives are to be subordinate to their husbands, or to submit to their husbands as Jesus does the Father. And I think that's weird. And if churches are using that, that's a really stupid argument. I mean, in the analogy, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So I think it's weird that Jesus at the same time could be the groom and the bride. I just, I just think that's, that'd be a really weak argument anyway. So if, if anyone's using that argument, that's really stupid and stop because number one, it's heresy. And number two, it's just really dumb. But like I said, I, she's had a lot of really bad experiences and I really hurt for her. I can feel the anger. I can feel the pain in this book. And so in conclusion, this book has given me a lot to think about. Personally, I was pulling for her. I wanted her to be right in her argument. And at this point, I'm just not sure. Like I said, it's a historical book and it's hard for me to have a really informed opinion on a lot of the historical things she brings up. I just kind of have to believe her and say, oh, okay, I didn't know that. I don't mind if I'm wrong on this and I'm very open to being wrong. I'm not entirely convinced by this book, but it's given me a ton to think about. And so I would highly recommend this book. Even if you're not convinced by the argument that's being made, I think it's really important to listen to the voices of women, especially those who have been hurt by the church, so that we can be more sensitive to that. So even if you're a complementarian who doesn't change your position as a result of this book, I would say it is still worth reading because these arguments need to be considered and her voice needs to be heard. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the work that we do in Liberia, feel free to visit standingsidebyside.org. If you'd like to make a donation, there's a donate tab on that page, or you can just Venmo at standing side by side. That's one word. If you feel alone, and if you feel like you're ready to give up on this whole Christianity thing, feel free to reach out to me and share your story. I'm so glad for those of you who have reached out to me already. Your stories have helped me, and I hope mine has helped you. Thank you so much for listening. Keep the faith. <laughs>